Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's episode, well, you are absolutely in for a treat. Um, Gabby and I, we looked at a few questions that people have been asking and sending into us lately. So questions like, should I wait for the market to drop? Um, should I try and time the bottom? What happens to me if I buy now and the market drops? Or I'm scared to buy a property if rates keep rising. What do I do? So if you've been asking yourself any of these questions, man, you are in for a treat because we ripped that apart. We use facts, data. We use some really powerful insights to actually show you what the facts are around all of this kind of stuff and how you can make better decisions. Now, I personally love this episode and I know that when I finish recording an episode and I'm just like, man, that was awesome, that usually they're the episodes that other people go, man, that was awesome, right? And so I'm telling you, I've just finished and I'm like, oh, some gold in there. So I can't wait to share this with you. So I'm going to shut up and I'm just going to let us, just let's get into it. And I hope you're excited too. And I would love to get your feedback. And if you've got any questions that you want us to bit that you would like us to answer on the show, just like this, then you just send them through to til at dashdot.com.au. And of course, if you find this episode valuable, make sure you share it with a friend, family member, or loved one. It's how we help grow the show and it's how we help other people. It's how you can make a difference in the lives of people around you. So Get stuck into it, share that around and give it to someone who you care about. But without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I can't wait to see you on the inside. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is Gabby, the wonderful, enigmatic Gabby Billing. Gabby, how are you today? Everyone's favorite guest. Am I a guest? Who knows? We'll make it up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, I was trying to go about to combine the words guest and host, and it was going to be ghost. And I was like, ghost. I'll own it. I can be, I can do it. <laughs> oh, you're the ghost. Gabby the ghost. You're the yes. ghost. Gabby the well, I would person. argue that I'm everyone's favorite host, right? So we can start that debate. I, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm, I'm not actually like, if you're looking for an argument, you're not going to get it from me. I know the reason that people come here you is because they're looking debate. Ah, yeah, but I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> I know, I know whether, I know whether, I know, I know what people really like. People, people, people love it when you're on the show. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, what's going on, Gabby? What have you been doing? What have I been doing? We went coffee hunting this morning. I say hunting like it's a sport. So, I was so, ha- I'm so happy you brought that up because if you didn't bring it up, I was going to bring it up. Copper might, right? Priorities. Sunday is like, you know, set up for the week, get your groceries, whatever. Priority number one is coffee. So we found this new uh, coffee roastery place. Amazing. Awesome. So good. Yeah. Such good coffee. Um, and yeah, I'm really stoked that we've got a, got, a, got a good new local roaster so we can get good fresh beans once a week. Loving it. Yeah. Super excited. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm, I was excited by that too. I thought it was a great start to the day. I'm actually on my, like my third cup of coffee today. No one's, I hope no one's judging me. Um, but no, I've been counting quietly. Just you've been counting. You. You've been counting. Bean. Co- coffee oh. bean counting. Ah! Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about as much as people care about our coffee drinking. That's not really what we're here to talk about today because they care about a whole lot of other things too, right? So apparently, I mean, I don't know what else people are caring about other than coffee. <laughs> no, more specifically, all our is. coffee. I don't know what else people are caring about other than our. Specific, all there is in the world is Goose and Gabby's coffee. <laughs> oh man, okay, <laughs> but yes, you're right. We're here to talk about other things. What are we here to talk about? 
Look, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in the world, right? There's a lot happening. Um, there's a lot. I mean, I feel like there's always a bit of fear in what is happening in the world. Like it's been a pretty wacky couple aren't of years, you, right? Aren't you over <laughs> it? Aren't you just fucking over it? Like, like. I am, yeah, but you can empathize. I empathize a lot. I empathize too much, as you know. So there's a there's a lot, and it's been a heavy, confusing, stressful, lots of changes, lots of like, what the hell do I do? Kind of questions just bubbling in the back of people's minds all the time. Um, and so we've actually like we want to take this opportunity in this specific podcast to pull apart like what are some four questions that seem to consistently come through from people about current environment, current economy, current property situation, like what are what questions are people asking and how can we how can we serve? Yeah, so we've got some questions, we're gonna hit them. Um and you've done <laughs> you've got quite a bit of prep. because uh, you love you love a good fact. Well, you love what, a good stat. What I think is important Right. What I think mm. is important because you're right. The last couple of years, it just feels like it's nonstop. There's always something, whether it be whether it be killer COVID or whether it be monkeypox or bloody the the Chinese debt crisis or the war in Ukraine. Not 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 down trying to downplay the war in Ukraine. It's a terrible situation. Um, you know, like there's always something. Interest rates are going up. Property market's gonna crash. Australia is gonna fall into some kind of economic oblivion. There's going to be World War Three when China... It's, it's like there's non Aliens are coming. Oh, my God. It's just like... Yeah, that, I wouldn't be surprised. I hope so. It'd be fun, actually. Oh, it's cool. not over that. <laughs> it's not over that. <laughs> Three coffees and aliens. Let's go. <laughs> no, but the thing is, like, there is just, like, I think that, by and large, a lot of people got doom fatigue. But also, do you know what happens when yeah. you're... When you're when I say doom fatigue, I mean this constant barrage of negativity that keeps getting pumped through. People are getting sick of it, I think, to be honest. But yeah. here, but here's the rub, right? There's two, uh, there's a couple of like unfortunate side effects, right? So constant exposure le- always leads to some form of contamination. I heard that quote the other day, and it was by a hmm. chemist, right? It was a guy being a chemist his whole life, like you know, nuclear chemistry or whatever. And he said, constant exposure always leads to some form of contamination. And that is so true like of the people that you hang around, right, for example, or the environment that you're in or uh, any of this kind of stuff or what you're feeding your mind with. If you get consistently exposed to anything, whether it be uranium or bad news, right, you are going to get some mm. form of contamination. And, you know, the problem the problem with this is even if people are intrinsically kind of going, I'm just over this constant barrage of negativity um, and all these, like, t- bad headlines and stuff, it does if you're if that is what you're consistently exposed to it's very it takes a very strong mind to be able to cut through that noise right obviously the easiest mm-hmm. way to do it is just to turn off the noise right <laughs> that's the easiest way to reduce the exposure and reduce the level of contamination pretty simple right mm-hmm. and um but also what happens over time is when your body and your mind is consistently um submitted to negative stimulus what it actually does is it continuously puts your 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 body into a fight or flight mode right and and so what it does is it raises your cortisol levels unbeknownst to you so anxiety levels are probably a little higher and all of that kind of stuff these are all like real side effects like this this physiological impacts of this um constant barrage of of negativity that people get and i actually think that it's it's a it's becoming a public health issue right and because it's also becoming a public wealth issue because where people are getting getting put into this state of fight or flight, they're starting to freeze. They're starting to go, 
geez, I just don't even know anymore. Logically, I'm questioning yeah. if this is even true, but man, I'm just, it's like, I'm a, and, and, and so it puts people into a state of doing nothing. And when they get into a state of doing nothing, they, they make no choice, which is still a choice. And that choice can actually be worse than making some choice. And so, yes, I'll put a little bit of prep into getting some stuff ready for this episode, because I think it is damn important for people to be able to make objective decisions. Now, I don't mind what decision people make. I am not here to try and convince everyone that they have to go and buy property, right? What I want is I want people to be able to make educated and informed decisions, right? If that decision yeah. is to buy a property, which pers- personally, I think there is a really good argument for that. However, everyone has a completely different set of, set of circumstances. So I'm not here trying to spruik like, oh my God, you're an idiot if you don't go and buy a house right now. No, 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 it's cool. I don't understand your situation. That's all good. But what I absolutely am passionate about is making sure that people are making decisions based on fact, not based on fear. And so I'm very excited to answer some of these questions today and about it kind of like bring some perspective to that. Cool. Let's get into it. So question number one, should I wait for the market to drop? That is a great question. Um, and so like the underlying part of that question is, should I try and time the bottom? That's actually kind of the underlying yeah. part of that question. It's like, should I wait for the market to drop? Well, well, like by how much? Like by, by a percent, by 2%. What they're actually trying to say is, I should try and I'm going to wait until the market has bottomed and then I'm going to, then I'm going to get into the market after that. Right? And it's pretty much mm-hmm. what they're saying, right? Now, there's a few things I want to like, tear apart in this question, which is a, such a good one because so many people are thinking that way because the media keeps telling us that the property market is crashing, right? The property market is going down, right? So there's this great quote that um, is, I can't remember the, the framing of it exactly. I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but the only thing that the, the, you know, the only thing about economists that is true is, or whatever, it's, it's lies, lies, and more statistics, right? Um, and, and, so, and so so basically, depending on how you look at the data, you can you can um, have a narrative which actually does factually point to the Australian property market declining, right? But here is why that is complete nonsense, right? So number one, there is no Australian property market. There's Mm -hmm. 15,264 suburbs in Australia. Now, I want to be super clear on this, right? Only about 5,000 of those suburbs are statistically significant, okay? So there's 15,264 towns and suburbs in Australia, but only about 5,000 of them are statistically significant. So what do I mean by statistically significant? So that means that they've got high enough sales volumes and stuff that you can truly reference the data without there being massive holes in it. Um, you know, they've got high enough uh, property values that they don't just become an anomaly when they when one property gets sold and all of it. So you've actually got to kind of like shave out shave out some of the noise in order to be able to get st- statistically viable sample size and, set- and results right when you're actually looking at the property market but it sure as hell ain't the five five major capital cities right that is not the property market but here is where the here is where the data gets a little bit skewed depending on whose narrative it is right and i've got to say the media typically has a very sydney centric narrative um and then they roll in some of the other capital cities when it makes sense to support the narrative so the problem with um, the problem with the way the current conversation is is it frames the property market. Oh, sorry, let me walk back. We've kind of kind of that. so the problem is Sydney as a market, right? The total market cap or the total value of all of the real estate assets in Sydney is so big that 
if there is a decline, particularly in the higher end of the market where the values are more asymmetrically larger, then it can pull down the overall aggregate value of many of the other parts of the country. So a simple way to explain this concept in a way that people might understand a little bit better. So BHP, right? BHP mm-hmm. is the largest company on the ASX, right? By a pretty long way, right? It's the number one on the, in the ASX 200. If BHP went down in value by 20%, what do we think would happen to the, even if all of the other companies in the ASX uh, 200 stayed exactly the same, didn't grow, didn't decline, what do we think would happen to the, to the ASX 200 index, right? I'll tell you, it would go down, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you could argue that, the ASX 200 is crashing when, in fact, one company in the ASX 200 is is potentially crashing, but not all of the other co- companies in the ASX 200, right? And so this is effectively what is going on right now. So I want to I want to I want to kind of just keep pulling this pulling on this thread. And Gabby, if you want to get in there, just just let me know because I'm three cups of coffee deep and we're starting to talk stats, <laughs> right? You're we're right. Numbers, you're right. So so. We actually did a study internally here. I said to um to our data science team, I said, "Hey, can we actually have a look at how many suburbs are actually growing in value right now?" And we looked at it, looked at it on a one month, three month, and six month historical basis. So we said, "Okay, how many how many suburbs in the last one month have grown have gone up in value? How many suburbs in the last three months have gone up in value? How many suburbs in the last six months have gone up in value?" Right. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to kind of get these numbers. You know what the most look, and all of those numbers are great, right? But I'm not going to get as bogged down in too many. I'm going to pull out the one fact that I think is the most interesting, right? That across all of those time periods, so for the last six months, 53.16% of statistically significant suburbs have gone up in value consecutively every month over those six months, right? So what that tells us is that over the last six months, over half of the suburbs in Australia are growing, right? But the media is telling us that the property market is crashing, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is where the nonsense comes into it because there is so, there is so much variability. Property markets are a local affair. So in order to understand what's happening in the property market, you actually need to look at what's happening in, in that specific area. So 53% of suburbs, as at today, have been growing conse- con- consecutively every month for the last six months. But if we look at the, um, if we look at the total number of suburbs, that have grown over the last six months, it is 88.86%, right? So, but that means what that, the reason that number is so much higher, right, is because they may have um, gone up for two months and down for one month and then up for two, uh, up for whatever, you know, get the point, right? So they may, they may not have done it consecutively every month for six months, right? But that is pretty bloody interesting in and of itself. The 88.86% of suburbs in Australia still grow, still on aggregate, have grown in value over the last six months, which is completely, completely opposite. Yeah, people of what don't realize doing. that. Yeah, totally. It's mad, right? So, so right. And the lowest, the lowest figure is looking at like how many of them consecutively grew over the last six months, and that is fifty three point one six percent. You know, the other, all of the other numbers based on a per month or like on a one month, three month, six month basis is significantly higher. So, I find that to be the most interesting one because it's the most conservative and also the most consistent. Now. The other thing to the other thing to consider with uh, with all of this is why why might because the media keeps telling us that the property market is going to go down is going down because of interest rates. So there might be some people thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to if interest rates are still going up, then the property market is still going to go down. So we've already 
proven that that is not that that is not the case. Over fifty percent of the suburbs in Australia are still growing, which, which is crazy, <laughs> right? Which is crazy. But we also did another study, which which is awesome. I said to the data science team that we've got here again, I said, "Hey, can we actually measure the correlation coefficient between median sales price growth and interest rates?" Now I'm going to break down what that means in simple layman's terms. Right? <laughs> the correlation coefficient is literally what is like how correlated are the two things, right? Interest rates and median sales price growth, right? It, so, so basically, if interest rates go up, do property prices go down? Do they go up? Or like how actually measurably, what is the relationship between those two things? Because if we listen to the media, they tell us it's basically 100%, right? right? Interest rates go up, prices go down. Interest rates go down, prices go up. That's simple, right? And so what they're trying to tell us is that there's an absolute correlation, probably something in the 90th percentile to the 100th percentile, right? Which is, which is that it is dictated. Like these, the markets are dictated by interest rates. What is so fascinating, right, is that we found, <laughs> we found results that were absolutely the antithesis of that statement. So we looked at the property market and interest rates um, from January 2000. And we looked at the correlation coefficient between all different markets. So um, all of the capital city markets and all of the regional markets in aggregate. So you sort of like New S- Greater Sydney, rest of New South Wales, Greater Perth, rest of WA. You know, you break them into these what the different kind of like categories of, of zonings of regions, right? So but we broke up the country into all of those different regions and we looked at it on an immediate basis. A, um, uh, I've got to remember off the top of my head, but it was basically like a three months, six, 12, 18, 24 months. We looked at it on all these different time series to go, okay, if interest rates go up, does it affect all areas? Does it affect none area, no areas with nationally, all of this kind of stuff? And we, we looked at that across all of the different areas. And what we found is that there, there is actually a correlation between those two things, but it is so weak. <laughs> it is so weak that it is basically negligible i i would argue that it is not it is almost almost insignificant right and so to give you some context around that at no point was the correlation between interest rates and median sales price growth greater than 30% right and in those cases the 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 specific example of when it hit 30% was in sydney and canberra at the 18 month lag period so if interest rates went up property prices might go down there's a 30% chance that prices might go down in Sydney and Canberra, for example, 18 months mm-hmm. after interest rates go up. That was the strongest correlation. That was the most likely relationship, right? And that was from that studied all markets in Australia since 2000 along with interest rates, right? So this is a pretty good study. Only a 30% chance that they might go down in, in, in a couple of places. But most of the time, the correlation coefficient was like, less than 10%, which means that there's less than a 10% chance that interest rates are going to have any impact on property prices in most parts of the country over any time series, whether it be 1, 3, 6, 12, or 18, or 24 months, right? So that is, yeah. that is a fact-based approach to actually trying to work out what, is, like what actually is happening here, right? And so the, what, the point of that is that the drivers of property markets are not interest rates. Right, so going back to the back, going back to the question, people are like, should I wait for the market to drop? So, firstly, they're perceiving that the market is a going to drop, or b is dropping, and c that they can actually find the bottom of the market. Okay, so if we have proven that the market is not dropping, in fact, statistically speaking, 
um, or, you know, scientifically speaking, um, more than 50% of the suburbs are actually growing, right? Okay, so the market isn't crashing, okay? And scientifically speaking, uh, there is there is a negligible correlation. So when I say negligible, less than 30% and in many cases, less than 10% correlation between interest rates and median sales price growth, which like basically nothing. I mean, I'm not going to gamble on, on a 10 to 30%, would you? Like those odds are dumb. Like those odds are really dumb. If you had a 30% chance of winning, um, you know, a game of, of blackjack, would you play it? No, you wouldn't, right? Like, like, huh? That being said, I don't know what the odds are in blackjack. So maybe, yeah. but, but, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> right. But so, so it's predicated on, on those, on those two things. Right. And so if you can mm-hmm. kind of deconstruct that, it's like, well, number one, is it even going down? And, and number two, what, like what would be causing it to go down? There's loads of other factors that cause property markets to move. Right. And it ain't interest rates. Let me just put it that way. Put it really, really simple. Now, this, the kind of second part of that, that time in the bottom is how would you know? Like, how would you know? Yeah. Is the bottom in the market today? Are we there? Is it going to go yeah. up tomorrow? How would you possibly know? Right? There's 24 million odd people in Australia or thereabouts. How would any of them know? How would you actually get to that decision? Now, transparently, we actually have the tools, not to be able to do that perfectly, but to be able to do it pretty bloody good, right? So we can actually see, is the market going to go down or is it going to go up? Could we time it to the day? No, absolutely not. We can't do that, right? But we can get pretty, pretty good. Like we can get pretty close and have a really good idea of, is it going to go up or is it going to go down to the point, you know, that we can actually start to make educated assessments on when people should exit suburbs, when people should enter suburbs and all of that kind of stuff to be able to maximize their, their opportunity in those, in those locations. The average punter doesn't have that. We've spent we've spent like three million bucks now developing this system. Some something along those lines. Like most people just don't have that capability. So how would you even do that? If you believe that that was something that you could do, tell me how you're going to do it, right? And so this thought about should I wait for the market to drop, I think is just it is a net result of the fear that people are being fed or the narrative that people are being fed that is factually incorrect, right? It's just factually incorrect. Because in a lot of places, like the market, markets aren't just growing a little bit, they're actually still growing a lot. Gabby, have I, do you think I've answered the question or do you think I need to explore any of that in a little bit further? The only thing that I'm thinking is actually like, okay, so you, you've pointed out how historically, you know, the last one, three, six months, there's been consistent growth in over half the suburbs. Mm-hmm. When the media narrative is so strong that, you know, not to drop the R word, but a recession of some sort is looming, I'm sure people are still thinking like, yeah, but, you know, a recession's coming, so shouldn't I wait for that to happen, you know? So we're proven like historically, it's been consistently growing despite the doom kind of conversation. Yeah. But how do we know that that's not around and doesn't it make sense to wait until that happens to try and, you know, collect all of these <laughs> cheaper assets if that's what my strategy is? It's a good question. So a couple of things on that. Number one, if you actually go and have a look at now, I always say, don't listen to the media and economists don't know what they're doing, right? But nonetheless, you should always fill your mind with inputs, right? You should yeah. always still put the inputs in. You need, to, you need to do multiple things. You need to take all of the information, then go find alternative information and find conflicting information on a formal worldview that is uniquely yours, right? And so mm-hmm. what is interesting right now is that the jury is totally out on whether or, whether or not we're going to go into a recession. Like even the media narrative is starting to change around that, <laughs> which is pretty yep. interesting. 
right? Roughly mm-hmm. 50% of economists uh, around Australia, there was a big survey recently, roughly 50% of economists said we're not going to go into, re- into a recession and roughly 50% of economists said we are going to go into a recession. And then when you broke that down a little bit further, most of them were p- putting odds, whatever side of the fence they were on, they were like 60-40, 50-50, like they were like right around on the fence. Even the ones who were like we are might only be 60-40 that we are, you know what I mean? Mm. And so that's barring obviously any kind of global, you know, uh, in, you know, kind of like existential threat or, or some other kind of factor. Then you've actually got to look at like the again the underlying facts. You know, at the moment we've got the record we've got a record low unemployment rate of three point four percent. We've got record business and personal savings around about four four hundred billion is still in cash savings that people aren't deploying into the economy yet. Um, we've got the lowest business insolvency rate in thirty five years. Um, well, I mean, recently that was the fact it's gone up marginally, but that fluctuates as well. International migration is starting to pour in. You know, there is so much opportunity happening in the economy right now that I think that people need to probably reconsider that position. The other part of that is like, why would there be an influx of properties onto the market selling cheap? Mm-hmm. Like, like this is a belief that people have, right? This is a belief that people have. Oh, there's going to be a lot of cheap properties coming onto the market soon. Yep. Why? What? S- straight up, why? Because I, I, I for one, cannot see how that reality is going to come to pass. And the reason yep. I can't see that reality coming to pass is because we've got record household savings, we've got record low unemployment, right? You know, how, um, when banks lend to individuals, they lend based, uh, they, they put a risk buffer on top of, their, on top of the mortgage, uh, on top of the, the assessment rate to make sure they can pay if rates do go up. So that's already been done. Most people care too much about status to be to be the one person in their family or the one person on their street who gets kicked out of their home because they can't afford the mortgage. So what do they? What will they do? What would they do? They would bloody you know just about sell anything. They do just about anything. They eat beans yeah. on toast. Now I'm not suggesting that's going to get to that point, right? But people don't want people care too much to be yep. kicked out of their home. It's their home, right? So people will fight tooth and nail for that to not even become a reality for them. Now, the only time it would become a reality is if people can't afford to keep paying the mortgage. So banks only foreclose on properties when the mortgages aren't getting paid. So as long as people can pay the mortgage, as long as someone can pay the mortgage, then there's no reason for the bank to call in the loan. Why would they want to? They're making Mm -hmm. money, right? And so if people can kind of understand that and then go, okay, well, what would the situation be that would be that would lead to that outcome, or how how could we, you know, what I just cannot understand it. Does that mean does that mean that no properties will come onto the market in a situation where someone is distressed? No, but that happens all the time anyway. And is it going to be some kind of like a tsunami event that is going to, on aggregate, change the change the course of the property market in Australia? I just don't think so. You know, like you got to remember, there's six hundred thousand odd properties get get bought and sold every year, right? And so mm-hmm. that's a pretty big ball. That's a pretty big number. And so I personally just I, I would just question where people are drawing that assumption from or, or gaining that belief from. Yeah, and I think from that, um, like the fire sale analogy, it's like I think in a lot of these situations when people actually do end up selling, it is more of that fear based rather than like because you're right with the home people will do pretty much anything to try and hold on to their home. Like actually having to sell the home that they live in due to the economic environment, it takes a lot to get to that point. Like you get resourceful, you find alternative solutions um, to get through that time. 
and it passes, right? Everyone knows that these situations pass. So it's like you do what you can to weather the storm at the time. Um, but I was just thinking, like, I think with the fire sale, it's be- it becomes about like people freak out, like, is this not the bottom? Like, I need to sell now. I think it's more relevant, particularly for like property investors. They're like, the market is now going down. And you're like, I better sell now before it gets any worse. And you see this with shares all the time. When shares, shares start to like turn back and you go, shit, better sell, get out. But then everyone thinks like that. And then that's what pushes the price down even even faster and there's more velocity. Um, so I think that that's that would come into play there with like again, trying to like have awareness about this mindset that this is what this mindset and all of these things in individuals played out across millions of individuals. Like this is what causes all of these changes. Yeah. So I think that I think that I think that helps. I think it helps. And again, I think it's like playing for the long term you know like if you if you buy a property today property is not a short-term game like you, you buy a property because you want to hold that asset ideally like the fundamental strategy it should be invest in an asset that you're going to hold forever right that that's the ideal philosophy you're buying the right property the right place the right time so as long as you can hold it throughout because you're going to have fluctuations in the period of time that you own it. You know, if you hold, hold the asset for 30 plus years, there's going to be economic situations that change. There's going to be like downturns. There's going to be upturns. There's going to be all of these different things. And if you can just get yourself in a position where you can hold it, sure, that turn might happen quicker after you've purchased it, but it's still, you should be expecting that at some point anyway. So I think it's just, again, maintaining that like long-term perspective is going to help as well. Yeah. What people don't realize about real estate is the prices go up, the values and the prices go up and down every day. They go mm. up and down every day. The thing is when people own shares, part of the reason shares are like harrowing is because you can see what the price of those shares are at any given point in time. You're like, they're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. Ah, should I buy it? Should I sell it? Should I buy it? And it gets like, it's pretty anxiety inducing, right? The thing is- yep is the same thing happens in the property market like if you overlay if you overlay you know two graphs one of one of like daily property values and one of like daily share values you're probably going to find they're going to look similar they're not going to follow the same patterns right but they're going to look similar the thing is that most people just don't have a measurement a measurement tool to battle to to better um visually represent what that looks like for their individual asset at any point in time right so they assume right because they'll they'll usually um get an assessment point of or a reference point on the value at two very disparate points right apart could be one month three months six months 12 months and that usually happens when you're like hey i wonder what the value of my house is today and i'll go speak to a real estate agent which kind of can work or you'll go get a um speak to your mortgage broker and they'll order a bank fail or something like that the Mm. thing is the, the time separation between the moment that you bought it or the last time that you checked and that point could be months right if you only check your shares every six months, what do you think the likelihood is that the value would be a, would be higher than your last time you checked it? Generally, pretty good. shares are more volatile. Not an exact, you know, not exact comparison, etc. But you get the point, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you could track the value of your asset as as dictated by the emotion in the market on a per minute or a per hour or a per day basis, you'd probably nearly yeah. have a heart attack because you'd see the graph be all over the place like an ECG, right? And that's just how all markets work, right? That is just a fact. And the thing is, 
That's because value and price are two different things, right? So price is dictated by emotion, right? And you see, you see this, you, you see this all the time. It's dictated by consumer sentiment. How much will people pay? They'll pay however much they think is a good thing at the time based on how they feel, right? <laughs> right? And that's that is and and, and selling price works the same as buying price and you know people think that you can't buy properties that are under market value it's like well you can you just need to have someone whose perspective on what the price is is different to the perspective of your perspective on what the value is and yep. also like what an ostensibly a third party perspective on that value would be like a bank right and that's usually based on their emotion or their perspective at the time right so the issue that we face right now in a general sense in australia is a consumer sentiment problem Right. And so, like, linking into that is really, really interesting. Right. Because, um, as at the time of recording, consumer sentiment is broadly speaking about the same level as it was during the GFC. Right. And it's starting to get pretty close to what it was in April 2020. Right. Right after COVID hit, we thought the world was going to end. Anyone who was alive and, and kicking and doing stuff and paying attention to the world, what was going on in the GFC. Right. That was like, holy smokes, you know, the entire, you know, monetary and financial system as we know it the whole basis of capitalism is about to implode we're going to be entering into a new world order people are thinking we're going to move to an agrarian utopia and it's all going to like we literally didn't know what the future looked like right that's that was the state of mind psychology consumer sentiment back in the gfc right and it's almost the same level of confusion doubt and uncertainty as it is today but the facts don't support it. At least during the GFC, there was like some like legitimate stuff going on, right? There's some legitimate actual problems. Those problems don't exist in the current market that that uh, that there is today. Like look at unemployment, look at look at you know the amount of savings and the investment and all of this kind of stuff that we've talked about already. And so there's an interesting there's an interesting piece right there, right? <laughs> because <laughs> because if you could go back to April 2020, or if you could go back to whatever like mid GFC. When everyone was else was freaking out, and you could go and buy a property then, how many properties would you buy? You'd probably buy a ton of them, right? And part of the reason for that is because you would be going against the consensus thinking because you would be able to see the opportunity that other people can't see, right? And so what what I want to do, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like peel back the curtain, give people give people a torch, and go, hey guys, take a look because it isn't what you think it is, right? Right now is not what you think it is, <laughs> and mm. if you are able. If you are able to think against the consensus thinking, you are going to be able to radically advance, asymmetrically advance when other people are contracting, right? So in times of certainty, there's so in times of uncertainty, there's only kind of two, there's only really two plays that you can make. There's conserve, contract, which is basically like uh cut all costs, save all your money, do it. We don't know what's going to happen, you know, do do like do like the chipmunk, you know, getting ready for getting ready for winter and whatever, and you know, hoard all the nuts quick. Everyone, get inside. We don't know what's going to happen. Don't know when the sun's coming out again. Ah, right. Or you can expand, right? You can gain more ground. You can lean in. You can use the situation to your advantage. There are always going to be challenges, right? No matter where you're at in your property portfolio, no matter where you're at in your wealth journey, no matter what day of the week it is, no matter what year of the decade it is, it doesn't matter whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, it literally doesn't matter. We face challenges every single day and there's always going to be someone telling us there's an obstacle, right? But what actually differentiates the people who are successful from the people who aren't successful is independent thought, the ability to overcome those ob obstacles, right? And the, the ability to be adaptable, right? Because Charles Dar people think that Charles Darwin said, you know, survival of the fittest. That's actually not true. It's basically, it's, it's it, I can't, don't have the quote to hand exactly, right? But it's like, 
it is not the it is not the strongest or the most intelligent uh, or whatever or the fastest that that survive. It is those that are the most adaptable. Adaptable. So basically, the most adaptable survive, right, or thrive in this case because they end up becoming the dominant species. <laughs> they end up becoming the. They don't just survive; they become the dominant species because guess what? Mm -hmm. The other things don't survive, right? And I'm not suggesting that you know people are going to fall into some economic oblivion, <laughs> right? But those people who can adapt more, they create an asymmetrical advantage, right? And so think mm -hmm. about it like this, right? If 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 there's a baseline and everyone else around you contracts by 10% and you don't contract at all, what is, that, what is the asymmetrical difference between you and everyone else when everyone else is contracted by 10%? 10%, right? What if you gain by 10%? Now, you objectively have only gained or expanded or grown, whatever that might mean in the context of that, by 10%. But if everybody else is contracted by 10%, you create an asymmetry of 20%, right? So you're going to be 20% further, further ahead than everybody else, right? And the only way that you can do that is to look for the asymmetrical advantage. How do I expand when other people are either psychologically, emotionally, um, economically, or whatever, contracting and pulling back, right? And that's how you can make those kind of gains. And so um, I've got one more point to make on that. So there was the, yeah, so the other thing, the other thing that kind of really changes the game around who is, you know, who ultimately is more successful is time horizon. Right, it's time horizon because the most successful people, the billionaires, for example, in the world, they think in decades, not weeks, not months, not even really years. Right, they think in decades. And if you want to be a successful property investor, you shouldn't be thinking necessarily like, "Oh, am I going?" Look, we help people get really fast gains in property. Right, we do that all the time. And there's people that are able to buy five properties and couple of years and you know totally crush it so you can go fast and you should look for opportunities to be able to move faster but you shouldn't be making decisions necessarily based on short-term observation observations right and so you shouldn't be thinking okay am i is this property going to make me rich in one year what's well, like are you going to hold it for five are you going to hold it for ten what is your portfolio strategy right and so Thinking about this in a time consideration, like you, you expand your macro, which means that you're not going to be overtly concerned by minor deviations in the market, even when they, they happen when you don't even notice it, right? But even if you do think that that is a potential reality, you should be thinking a little differently as well. Cool. So <laughs> that was question one. Um, we've actually come into... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just looking at... Question two, we've actually kind of wound question two into some of those answers already. But question two is what happens to me if I buy now and the market then drops? Okay, we've cool. already kind of pulled apart, but let's let's answer what we can. Yeah. So I mean we have kind of pulled that apart a fair bit in um in some of the answers uh, already. So firstly, like does it matter, right? So the question is, does it does it matter, right? If your mm -hmm. price goes, if you value if the value probably goes up and down a little bit on a day-to-day -day basis. Does it matter? No, not really, right? The, the bank is not going to margin call you effectively um, if, unless you stop being able to pay your rent or being able to, pay, or being able to pay the mortgage. Um, you know, markets fluctuate all of the time, right? So what happens to you if you buy now and the market drops is ostensibly nothing. You might slow down a little bit, right? But I can tell you that you are more likely to make significant gains by taking action. You're, you are certain to make no gains by doing nothing, right? That is a certainty. Yep. If you do nothing, 
you have a zero chance of success. Yep. If you do something, what are your odds of success? And I would argue significantly above 50%, right? Because, because depending on your time scale and your macro, that is going to dictate that outcome. I love there, there was a quote that I put together for this uh, from Warren Buffett. Obviously, he's a shares guy, right? And that's cool. But he said, markets don't settle down. They settle up, which is really interesting, huh. right? So by the time the news looks a little bit better, the market has already recovered. And if you miss the recovery, there's a very, very good chance you're going to make it harder to hit your financial goals, which I thought was awesome. Anyone who, anyone who, mm. yeah, markets don't settle down, they settle up. So, all right, let's say you, let's say you bought a property today and it went down by 5%. What do you think that that property is over the next five years? Do you think you're still going to be down? Probably not. Probably going to be up a ton, right? And so if you're really thinking about it from that context, the question is like, how much does it actually matter? Like if you look at someone like Warren Buffett, right? Arguably the greatest investor alive, right? I think everyone would probably agree with that. He's a value investor. And as property investors, you should be a value investor too, right? That is like the smartest way to invest. Now, as a value investor, when, pro- when share markets start to go down, when prices start to go down, what does Warren Buffett do? Buys more. He says, it's great. Yeah. You are perfect. When, it, when the market is going down, buy. Like Even if it keeps going down, yeah, just buy. It doesn't really matter because markets settle up. Not, they just keep buying, keep buying because it's cheaper. They're cheaper now than they were. Now, I'm not suggesting that markets are going to go down and you're going to be able to buy all these cheap properties. I just think that that is nonsense. I can tell you for a fact, uh, you know, we're buying... Uh, well, you know, we're buying more properties per month than many real estate agencies sell in a whole year, right? More than some whole towns and stuff sell, uh, you know, move in a whole year. We're buying a lot of properties, right, per month. And I can tell you in absolute terms, right, that it's not like it's a bargain basement bin out there where you just got to buy all these cheap properties. Or if they are, all right, like maybe, maybe question, are you buying in the right place, it's right? Either. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, you know, like what's going on there? Because you should be buying it in, in good markets, not bad markets. But, mm. but I, love the, I love this idea that markets settle up, not down. Now, there's, ooh, I'm going to go into the third question in a minute if I answer that. So does that answer this question? What happens to if I buy now and the market drops? Yeah, with that, um, with that value investing mindset as well, it's like, again, Warren Buffett is in shares and not property, but the concept of like when it when something of value is priced cheaper than buy as many as you can that works because they have a fundamental belief that it is going to come back up again mm. if they didn't believe that they wouldn't buy it they don't just buy it because it's cheap they buy it because it is underpriced at that point in time because they know that there are fluctuations so again it's like a, it's thinking that kind of mindset of like it, this fluctuations coming so it's like Sure, things might go down, but they also go back up. And like this asset class that we're talking about here being real estate, like it generally trends upwards over time, right? Yeah. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get, right? Yeah. Just because something is cheap doesn't make it a good deal, right? Absolutely. A a, a cheap pair of shoes in the wrong size is is, is still the wrong size. It's useless, right? (laughs) So so just because it's cheap doesn't mean you should buy it, right? It's about it's about really understanding like what are the fundamental drivers and is it a good now just sticking on the Warren Buffett thing uh, uh, there for a little moment I was actually reading about um, this he's taking a huge stake in this oil company called Occidental whatever Occidental Petroleum or whatever they're called Occidental is the, is, a, is the name right and it's so fascinating because this is a, no it's really it's a really interesting um, kind of look at it because this company 
was worth about $50 billion. And then um, they, I think they bought another company or, or something like that and basically took a whole bunch of, a bunch of debt appeared on their balance sheet, which effectively took the value down to like, I don't know, I think it was like $4.2 billion, right? From $50 billion, right? Wow. But yeah. they're a cash generating machine. It's so high margin. And they're, so they're already paying back all of the debt off their balance sheet. So Warren Buffett has said it was like it is literally the same business, but it's just trading at like four billion dollars versus fifty billion dollars in value. So he's like buying as he's literally buying as many shares as the government will allow him. He's like trying to buy more, and every time he has to go through because he's just like, what? Hang on, it's worth that, and I can get it for that. And so, so I just mm. think that it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Now I will repeat this again because I don't want people to get the wrong idea, right? The property market isn't crashing, right? And it is not the time to go and start scooping up bargain basement prices, right? Can yep. you get good deals in any market? Yes, right? Are property prices going down in some locations? They absolutely, definitely are. That is a fact. In some suburbs, prices are going down. Does that happen literally every single day? And has that happened literally every single day for the last 100 years? Yes. Right, it is. There is never a case where all suburbs are going up and all suburbs are going down. It just doesn't exist, right? And so some places are going down in value. Just so, like, primarily happens to be where there's like lots of journalists living, and they're like, "Oh wow, everyone loves talking about Sydney and everything like that." But if like, if property prices went down in West Albury, right, would that make headline news? Probably not. If prices go down in Bondi, does that make headline news? Yeah, probably, right. And so really, it's a perspective on where you're getting information from and around, and around what. Now, why, do some, why, why right now are some places like Sydney and Canberra and Melbourne and to, to some extent Brisbane now starting to go down in value? Well, again, just tearing that apart a little bit, right? So it's not all of the suburbs in all of those cities because those cities have all got a lot of suburbs in them. It's not all of those suburbs in all of those cities that are going down. It is some of those suburbs in those cities which are going down. You're probably going to find that some of those suburbs are actually going up in value, right? Mm -hmm. Because property markets are a local affair, right? Now, to now to back to the interest rate thing though. What is interesting is that ostensibly higher priced, uh, higher priced markets where people stretch themselves and still use mortgages tend to be more affected generally. And again, the correlation coefficient which we talked about earlier in the episode is quite low still, but in a general sense and an anecdotal and an empirical kind of sense, you can understand that in markets where people are stretching themselves, so typically trying to go from middle to upper status, right? They -hmm. probably still have a mortgage, right? And they probably leverage themselves up to try and get a more expensive house and live in a better suburb and all that kind of stuff. Those people are ostensibly more affected, right? And that is because the cost of debt is higher and specifically, it is much higher relative to the income being generated by the people in that location. It is asymmetrically different, right? Yeah. And so, like, incomes don't really change that much across the country, right? But prices of property really do. And so, when you've got really expensive properties and people are really stretching all of their affordability to try and uphold these status, and I'm going to live, I'm going to live in, geez, I don't know, Vaucluse or or whatever, or or, or Double Bay or something Pots like Point. that, Potts Point or something like that, they, they might be stretching themselves. Where it actually kind of doesn't matter is like the really wealthy who buy the stupidly expensive houses and pay cash, right? And cash, because yeah. They're not, 
they're not getting mortgages. They don't so care about interest who rates. Who cares what the interest yeah. rate is because they're paying cash, right? And so what you might see in the headlines is that our oh, trophy homes or whatever are still selling for like 40 million bucks and whatever. It's like, yeah, guess what, guys? They're not getting a bloody board. They're not going down to CPA and going, huh, can I get a 90% loan on this $40 million house? They're not doing yeah. it. They're paying cash, right? But where you see the, the, the difference is like in that kind of like 1 million to 10 million kind of range, I would suggest where people are really stretching themselves, right? And that's where you're going to see much more price sensitivity because of the cost of debt, right? So can situations like this affect some suburbs more than others? Yes. Just in the same way that changes in iron ore prices globally can affect some locations more than others, right? So do you think that if iron ore prices fell by 80%, that some locations would would be adversely affected by that probably because you know in WA iron ore is a larger part of the economic makeup of what actually fuels you know the government in that the massive amount of revenue is generated off iron ore right is it more likely to affect perth than it is likely to affect sydney yeah <laughs> because people in sydney who are in financial services typically more generally right you know in a very broad brushstroke way or more in professional services and stuff like that right are less affected by the price of iron ore, right? And so what you have is you have all of these different inputs that, that go into different markets that dictate different things in different ways. The price of beef, right, on or, or trade tariffs on beef might affect some locations but not others, right? And so you have all these kind of like various inputs. It just so happens that right now people are fixating on the performance of less than 50% of the suburbs in Australia and mm. trying, to pay the, trying to pay the bit of picture. So back to the point, um, what happens if you buy now and the market drops? I'll go back to it and say pretty much nothing, right? Unless you sell the property, you ain't making a loss. Unless you believe that the market is never going to go up again, then it's just you just need to be patient, right? Mm -hmm. Could it slow you down a little bit? Yeah, it could slow you down a little bit. But again, think about the time horizon. Think about what you're trying to achieve. Now, in the analysis um, that we did around uh, how many um, suburbs were growing. And remember, just to kind of reiterate and anchor that point back, we did a study on on all statistically significant suburbs in Australia. And we found that that 53.16% um, of suburbs have grown consecutively every month for the last six months, which is counter to the media narrative, right? If we were to split that out into capital cities and versus regionals, what we would probably find is something like, you know, 80% of regionals, regional suburbs are probably growing. And I'm making this up because we haven't done the split, but we may very well do the split pretty soon. But we probably find something like 80% of, of regional suburbs are growing and maybe only 20% of capital city suburbs are growing, right? Because, because of this um, asymmetry between what is happening in, in you know, different markets in different ways and different reasons. So, so can you still buy <laughs> in emerging markets and markets that are yet to become hotspots? You absolutely can. In fact, we're doing it right now. Right. So, so, um, anyway, I'm kind of going a little bit off topic, but does that answer that question? Do you think? Yeah. And I think on the where you started was, um, like if, if the market, you know, the market or if your individual property, you know, hits a bit of a dip, depending on, you know, which market it is in, which suburb, what kind of environment, what kind of time, um, banks are unlikely to come in and say, give me your property now. Like that's unlikely to happen. Largely because as long as you can keep making the repayments and keep paying off the mortgage, they don't really care. They're like, as long as you can keep doing that, 
And in these environments, ostensibly, like as long as your income is the same and you can still afford to pay the income and your and rents are still the same, neither of those are likely to change, I guess. Like the rents, people still, if you still got p- tenants in the property, they're still going to be paying rents. It's like the rent doesn't also drop back in those environments. So I think, yeah, just thinking about, again, it's like trying to actually picture what this thing that you're scared of actually looks like for you. Like what is what am I scared of in this environment? Like I'm, I'm scared of this looming drop that everyone says is going to happen. What is actually going to happen in my situation? Like what changes are going to cause for me and being able to define what that is so you can realize like, okay, actually that's not really like likely to affect me or it will a little bit and it'll affect this aspect and this is how I can prepare for it and not just prepare for it, but it's actually realizing that it's not a cause for inaction. Like everyone is kind of seeking these excuses and these reasons to not take action because I think, you know, going back to what you said at the start of the video, like we're all kind of overwhelmed and desensitized to all of the stuff that's happening. So we have this kind of freeze response to the collective like level of trauma that everyone's going through. So we're all kind of just like, I'd rather just do nothing. And so being able to identify like actually if I actually just pay a little bit of attention to this and actually just think about this a little bit, what is actually going to come in this, you know, hypothetical doom situation that's about to come apparently and defining that so that you can figure out like, this is how I can adapt and prepare. And that's actually just one little piece of my strategy and it's not going to hold me up um, moving forward. Yeah. So you, you've touched on a really, really good thing there, right? So I'm going to quote you, Gabby, right? I'm going to quote you because you said something really powerful the other day and you said you should only ever be fearful or sorry, you're only ever fearful if you don't know what the enemy is. And once you know what the enemy is, you can work out how to fight it, right? And so in this mm-hmm. context, what you're, what, what we're, what, you're, what you're basically saying is like, what actually do you think is going to go wrong? Like, where do you think you're going to be, you know, attacked? Where do you think it is going to, where it is going to, what is the downside risk? And my argument is that ostensibly things are actually significantly better than what we're currently being told. And to borrow from uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only fear, the only thing to fear is fear itself, right? Because fear puts you into a doom loop. Fear makes you try and find all of the reasons that you should be doing nothing versus versus objectively looking at the facts and trying to understand what actually is the situation. How can you use it to your advantage? We've got one more question, Gabby. Yes. Let's do it. So question number three, I'm scared to buy property if rates keep rising. What do I do? Okay. So there's there's effectively um, two reasons that people might be scared, only two. If interest rates keep rising, prices might fall. Or if interest rates keep rising, I might have to afford to hold the property, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Those are, those are really the only, two, the only two reasons that I think people are really afraid. So um, again, going back to the um, scientific analysis that we did, where we analyzed the correlation between interest rates and median sales price growth um, across all regions of the country and nationally in aggregate since 2000, so 22-year study that we looked at, 22-year data set, we found that the correlation whilst there was very negligible, right? The strongest was 30%, which means there's only a 30% likelihood that it would affect those locations. And that was Mm -hmm. only in like two or three locations two or three regions nationwide in one time series when in actuality in most parts of the country across a one 
three, five, uh, one, three, six, uh, 12, 18, 24 month periods, there was like less than 20% or less than 10% correlation. So basically less, t- less than 10% um, likelihood that it's going to be impacting those areas or, or less than that much of an impact, which is so small. Like you would not make decisions, but you should not be making decisions based on a 10, 10% potential impact, right? That is just like not a 10% uh, not a ten percent absolute impact. Like if interest rate rises, it rise, it is going to make it go down by ten percent. It's like ten percent chance that it's even related. That it's even going to do anything, right? Which is really, really interesting, right? So if interest rates keep rising, scientifically we can show and prove that there is very there is a relationship, but it is very weak and it's pretty negligible. And it's like it's certainly not absolute, and you should be making decisions based on that, right? So let's just park the property prices falling thing because that's got Mm. nothing to do with interest rates, right? Are there reasons that property prices might fall? Yeah. And and as we've just discussed, like in some parts of Sydney, probably, probably, probably that is related to the cost of mortgages, right? But it's pretty low correlation and there's probably other factors too. And even in the case of Sydney, you've still got to remember that that macro, the growth is still way above where it was, right? And so, so people are still making gains. The other part of it is mortgage costs or the cost of holding those properties. And I think this is yeah. a really important one, right? I think this is a really important one because if you can uh, understand that there's basically no relationship, I don't want to get called out by the data science team, right? A weak, <laughs> a weak, a weak relationship. You can't right? say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're very particular. So a weak relationship between between um, interest rates and 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 media sales price growth. Okay, cool. Right. So let's park that. Then it's like, yeah, I know, but like, dude, I don't want to end up like having to pay heaps and heaps of money I can't afford it, right? So mm-hmm. the thing to understand there is, and this goes back to the time horizon discussion as well. So I had a look at um, at interest rates over the last like 40 years, and I couldn't, and this is empirical. I was looking at graphs with my eyes and, you know, my fingers and stuff like that, right? So we haven't done it like, we haven't got the data science team onto it too. But I could not identify looking at a looking at a chart of interest rates over the last 40 years, I could not identify a time where interest rates rose for longer than like two years, right? Mm-hmm. That's not to say that it can't happen, but that's just to say historical, historically, it hasn't really happened, right? Not that I could see, right? And again, that was empirically, uh, not quantitatively, right? So- um, it's likely that this is only going to be a temporary situation. And we know that because that is specifically and overtly the point, right? It is not, hey, we're rising interest rates forever because everyone's had cheap money and screw you guys, everyone's going to pay more. It is like it is like the only reason we're rising interest rates, we don't really want to, but we have to because we're going to get inflation under control. As soon as that's under control, yeah, we'll knock them back down again, right? So, so ostensibly, it should be pretty easy for people to understand that this is likely only going to last for less than 24 months. Okay. So then you've got to think macro around, okay, what is my investment strategy and how does this how does this play out? And is this still a good time to invest? And thinking about what the total return is is actually more important than thinking about necessarily the cash flow. I'll come back to how to manage that cost in a second, right? Mm-hmm. But macro, if your property goes up by $50,000, but it costs you $2,000 in negative cash flow, you've still made $48,000. Would you choose to make $48,000 or would you choose to make $0 and leave your cash in the bank where it's going to be eaten away by inflation at about 6% or 7% at the moment anyway? So you're going to lose 7% of your cash or you're going to make $48,000. Which would you choose, right? It should be a pretty simple choice for any sensible investor, right? To still go after making, getting those good opportunities and taking that on. Now, 
the other thing is that rents are rising potentially the fastest they've ever risen. Now, I haven't looked fastest they've risen since like 2010, that's for sure. Um, so certainly in the last decade or 15 years, definitely the fastest they've risen, right? Um, in fact, they've risen by over the last just over 24 months, rents have risen by 33.86%. Rents, that's nationally, right? So that is nationally. So that takes into consideration the areas where rents haven't risen as fast as others. In the locations we've been buying properties in for our clients, rents have been rising by like 20% in a year, right? It's crazy, mm. right? And so even, even when, even with the rising cost of debt on those assets, that can be offset just by rents going up, right? Because there's all of these factors that are, that are playing into the fact that rents are rising and are going to continue to rise. The vacancy rates are at record lows. People can't build any more houses or it's very tough to build build properties at the moment because of supply chain issues, building company issues and all of this kind of stuff. Very hard and not very, not very cost effective to be building new properties at the moment, which means less people have got less choices about places to live. We've got immigration coming into the country. You know, they're trying to crank that up to, I think, about 250,000 um, uh, immigrants a year, which is huge. That's a massive influx, right? And people coming into the country that all need places to live, right? And not, not only that, we've got, um, it's harder for first-time owners to get into the market, not just because of prices, but also because of um, debt. It's actually harder to get a loan now because interest rates have gone up. Once you add the buffer rate on top of that, it's harder to get a loan than it was 6, 12, 18, you know, 24 months ago for a first-time owner, which means that there's people who are coming of age and moving out of home who aren't able to buy their own home or people who are you know, in their 20s and 30s who's, who still – like, so you're getting more people in that renter pool, Right. Because there's less people exiting the renter pool and becoming homeowners, whilst there are still people entering the renter pool. So even without migration, you've still got this expanding pool of people who want rent rental properties, right? But no more rental properties are being created. Okay. And so you've got this situation where there's an increasing demand, but there's no increasing supply. Okay. So not every area is going to be the same, right? Some areas vacancy rates are going up. Why? Because people don't want to rent there. They don't want to live there, right? And this goes back to the point that not all my, there are, you know, there's multiple markets across the country markets are a local affair right not not a not a national affair and so but generally speaking vacancy rates are down and they continue to go down because there's nowhere for people to rent and that's pushing rents up and so the likelihood is that rents are going to continue to rise for the significant future because there is no policy position to change this state of reality for renters nationwide in order to fix this problem it is a gargantuan problem it is, it is going to be one of the biggest social problems of our lifetimes that people are going to be stuck and trying to, and even not even being able to find a place to rent. So this actually requires intervention on a, on a government level. This isn't like get more developers to build more houses, right? So there's going to need to be some major kind of shift in order to be able to solve this. And no one is even having that discussion, right? So, so that it is safe to assume that this trend is going to continue for some time and that it's going to mean that, that rents aren't just rising for the next 24 months, they're probably going to continue to rise. And when you buy a property, you lock in the price on day one, right? So, but you don't lock in the rents on day one. You lock, you might lock in the rents for, for 12 months, but then in 12 months, they go up again when you do a rental assessment, if people want to renew their lease, et cetera, you can reset them to market rent, right? And when there is very high demand, you could also be selective about who you get. It's not just like raising the rents and then suddenly ending up with drug addicts and drug dealers renting your property and kicking the walls in, right? Because mm. there are more people trying to rent, and or for all of these factors, you can actually be selective and make sure you're getting good tenants. And so this isn't a situation where you're suddenly going to 
So it's actually like the quality of tenant is going up macro, price of rents is going up macro. And so you're in this situation where there's a lot of things working for you to be able to make that up. And so mm-hmm. we actually just did an episode recently. We're talking about all this kind of stuff a little bit more. But 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 broadly speaking, I don't think people need to be fearful of that, right? And there's other there's loads of other ways that you can offset some of those costs, like putting um, putting putting your savings into your offset accounts and stuff like that to minimize the cost of the debt and and all these kind of things. So based on those two fear factors, which is one, the prices are going to fall. Well, that's kind of not true. If just, that's unrelated, and um, it's going to be unaffordable to hold a property. I, I just don't see that they are true. They they are stories mm. that people are telling themselves. They are not facts that people that that people are uh, paying attention to. Yeah, and I think you um just bringing you back a point that you made earlier about um you know when people invest in shares because you have optics over the daily fluctuations, there's more emotional fluctuations in for the investor looking at that portfolio because they see the up or the down and they go oh shit today's a good day now not a good day like it can change that rapidly um, versus if you just looked at it today and then you came back in twelve months if you bought correctly it's likely that that value will be higher and you've just removed that kind of emotional um, response. And I think this kind of comes into play thinking about that, um, like the two kind of parts in this are the the income from the asset, so being the rent that you're talking about, and the cost of the asset being the interest expense, which is you know based on the current interest rate at the time. So I think the thing with the rents is like because you only have really usually an opportunity to increase that once a year, you give less emotional bandwidth to the that situation and the and give it less weight of the impact versus like interest rates. You hear about it on the news every day at the moment. You're seeing every week, month, whatever, how frequently the prices are changing over time. So I think you're seeing more of the interest rate side and the the increasing costs and then people freak out about that more because they're seeing more, they get more frequent optics. And so the emotion comes into that and then you get caught in your head of, I don't actually know when that's going to stop. You know, at the moment, it's like this month compared to last month, it's going up. And then that month compared to the month before, it's going up as well. So you're getting that more frequent feedback loop and your emotions are coming into it, comparing it with that other side of the equation, which is the rents, where you only really have the opportunity to increase that once a year. But it Again, if you're buying correctly, it can relatively neutralize based on the growth of both sides. Yeah, and again, I think it's a, it makes total sense, right? And it's also it's also again macro. Like people need mm. to zoom out, right? People need to absolutely zoom out because ostensibly, if you buy a property today and it's a six percent gross yielding property, is that good? Yeah. Is it? Is there a chance that it might be cash flow negative? Yeah, and there's a chance that it might be cash flow negative. Um, would it have been cash flow negative twelve months ago? Probably not, based on the cost of debt, mm-hmm. right? But could it be cash flow negative today? Probably. I mean, like, well, certainly, maybe. Depends on a variety of factors, right? Yep. Would does that mean that that is a shit property to buy? Assuming that all of the other factors and stuff, because yield is only one element in making a decision about a property. The point that I'm making though is that over macro, like that is going to wash itself out, right? So. So rents are going to continue to rise over time. You've locked in the price on day one. Mortgages aren't going to mortgage cost of debt is not going to continue to rise. And over a five, 10, 15, 20 year time horizon, like are you making a good investment decision? That's the question you've got to ask yourself, right? Not, not uh, am I going to be up or down a hundred bucks? 
right? Because you're not you're making you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars of a decision when you're buying a property, and a lot of people are worried about a hundred bucks here or a couple hundred bucks there. I am not trying to downplay the impact that um, you know five hundred bucks a month, for example, could have on a household, right? I am not trying to downplay that. That is real, right? For a lot of people, that would be untenable. But also, when you're investing, you need to be able to think macro, right? Rather than making all of these kind of, you know, emotional decisions based on based on minor fluctuations. When there's actually a bigger game at play here, and to your point, you you go overweight on small details or overweight <laughs> on external inputs and underweight on strategy and underweight on macro. And that's where I think a lot of people go wrong. Cool. Cool. So we were going to do this like Q&A style, but we just oof, went off. Went <laughs> We've off on got one. so many more questions as well. So I think we're going to need to, um, we're going to need to circle back <laughs> maybe another episode or two, maybe. Okay. Well, that sounds good. I've enjoyed this. Yeah. I like this. I like this um, format. If, guys, if you've enjoyed this too, let us know and let us know what, you, what questions you've got too, because we can answer your questions uh, mm-hmm. on the podcast. Um, send them in to til at dash dot dot com dot au. That's til at dash dot dot com dot au. Send them in. Um, we'd love to hear what you quote, what questions you've got about the current state of the market, and trying to answer them and help you too. But Gabby, should we leave it there for today's show? Let's do it. Let's get another coffee, shall we? <laughs> coffee number four. Woo. It sounds it sounds great. Um, well, I've enjoyed this, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it too. If you have enjoyed this, do us a favor. Actually, don't do us a favor. Think of someone that you love. And do them a favor. Do right? yourself a favor. No, 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 no. Don't do it <laughs> yourself a favor. Do you do a favor for someone that you love, mm-hmm. right? Because when you're in an environment where there is so much fear and so much misinformation out there, right? It is so hard to get a perspective that allows you to make effective decisions. And that's what I really hope that you get out of this episode. And so if you got that out of this episode, Think of somebody else who might be stuck in fear. Think of somebody else who might be making no decision or poor decisions based on these inputs that we've debunked today and share this episode with them and help them out. Don't do it for us. Do it for them. Make sure you share this with a friend, family member, a loved one who needs it. But that's all, folks. We'll see you on the next episode. (laughs) See ya. 